Brendan Madigan, and this is Afterglow. In episode 7, we sit down with the most iconic and recognizable adventure photographer alive today, Chris Burkhardt. Burkhardt is known for traveling to the furthest expanses of the earth in order to capture stories that inspire humans to consider their relationship with nature. He also works diligently to promote the preservation of these wild places. Layered by outdoor, travel, adventure, surf, and lifestyle subjects, Burkhardt is known for images that are punctuated by untamed and powerful landscapes. His photography is stunningly beautiful and remarkably inspiring. In our chat, Burkhardt speaks candidly about his quest for validation through work as a creative person, as well as his connection to remote places that deserve to be visited so that they can then be protected. I hope you enjoy an amazingly powerful and insightful conversation with one of the world's most accomplished and driven adventure photographers. Pretty much an open book. You seem pretty black and white. Yeah. Cool. Tell me about your kind of... um, initiation into photography did you go into it knowing you were going to be a professional or yeah it's a funny one because um i think that i was like the i came from the least likely circumstances to ever do what i'm doing now i grew up without a passport single parent home in a small town of central california uh never traveled anywhere uh never even left the country um and i picked up a camera because i was really interested in art and i loved art but i was constantly feeling stifled being stuck on the hillside with an easel or in a classroom with you know paint pens or whatever and i i was like yeah this is kind of frustrating you know and i, I picked up um my girlfriend at the time's mom's uh camera it was an old canon eos you know whatever and um i was going up the coast surfing with my friends every day and i started taking pictures and i i felt this like sense of um, place and I, I kind of all of a sudden looked at it and it wasn't I it was like purely non-creative it was like this could this tool could get me out of the small town you know this could make me you know see the world or whatever and it was it was just really like eye-opening experience like wow photography could be that like passport to freedom sort of thing but it wasn't like oh I want to change the world and and you know conservation and all these things that you know I think come way 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 down the line it was purely selfish I wanted to collect a paycheck and and get stamps in my passport, you know, that was it. And so that was really my first inclination to photography was like, I was just excited to, to know the world outside the dinner table and the six o'clock news and all the things that kind of come with living in a small town. And, and so that was, that, I guess that was sort of my, um, my intro and it, and it really very, very slowly progressed from there. It was not a glamorous rise to, uh, to, you know, whatever you call, you know, what I'm doing now. Right. <laughs> Yeah. And I've heard you say, you know, you lived in your car for five years and you ate questionable Mexican food. And, yeah. You know, I still eat questionable Mexican yeah. food. I mean, I don't... <laughs> Did you know at a certain time when there was something bigger possible by utilizing a camera? Um, No. You know, I, it was funny because people always ask like, oh, is there some big break? And I'm like, you know, there, there wasn't like a big break. There have been great moments along the ride where I've been like feel, felt really validated and felt like I'm doing the right thing and I'm on the right path. And obviously I I think what ends up happening is that any creative person, you you seek this validation um, because it's really hard to be self-validated or, or feel that um, empowerment that comes from just doing what you're doing and knowing that you're doing what's right. 
Um, so we kind of seek it from relationships and people and editors and magazines and yada, 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 what, what have you. And for me, there, there's never, you know, there's been little moments along the way, but I feel like at a certain point, I just had to decide like I, I, this brings me joy and I love it. And it was kind of that moment for me not really a, it wasn't really like a success tipping point. It was more like an emotional tipping point where I realized like what I'm doing is, is bringing a lot of joy to those around me because I'm able to come back and share these places that I've been with my mom, you know, or, or my stepdad or whatever, who've never left the country. And like, that was a really big thing for me was to be able to come back and share these experiences. And, and as time's gone on, that audience has grown from, you know, those in my living room <laughs> to, you know, obviously this large audience on social media, whatever, yeah. but it's still the same thing. Like it's mm-hmm. still, it still same comes message. down. To, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like it's, I, I aim to share these places because I'm passionate about them and, and, um, and I want people to experience them themselves. Right. Yeah. It's pretty, I think it's pretty rad to see, obviously the photos speak for themselves are super gorgeous and compelling and, you know, aspirational pieces of art. I really appreciate the words that you, that go with them. Right. And I think as a photographer, you're obviously telling a visual story, but you're also, your writing's really beautiful and it's, thanks inspirational i think we saw that last night yeah it's a funny one because i think that as um we we tend to try to just let the photographs speak for themselves and that's like the kind of the old adage like a photo is worth a thousand words but what i think ends up happening is that all of a sudden with the sort of um influx of social media and things like that we have the ability for people to write something and yeah. all of a sudden there's this blank space where you you can write something there mm-hmm. and you're like oh yeah what am i going to put there and so i think that the the um, people tend to just, they kind of gravitate towards other people's words to describe how they feel. And that's fine. You know, it's totally fine. But when there's an opportunity for you as a creative person to really enlighten people to what you felt there and what you experienced and maybe even make your own quote, like that's the place to do it. And I think that for me, that's really helped me to define like my own vision as a photographer. And it's helped me with like public speaking and writing books and all these other things is being able to express what I felt and and how I felt in these places and what it meant to me internally, because we're out there creating all this, whatever you call it, want to call it content art, you know, what have you. It's, it's for a reason, right? And this, the, the clearer we can define it, I think the more that we come to peace with like why we're doing what we're doing, Sure, you know, I mean, that, that goes like, anybody you know it's not mm-hmm. just i think photographers but you know anybody right so. totally whatever yeah. role you play in life yeah. yeah well i think what's interesting too is we you know social media obviously is is uh is so big in everyone's lives now and it's right. been revolutionary mostly a for, big time suck probably yeah, <laughs> totally it's been revolutionary for my business mm-hmm. you know but it's i think it's cool to um treat it as uh, kind of a conduit for positive change right it 100%. isn't it's i love the approach that you have where it's not just you know, obviously you have to make a living, but it isn't just a, a selfish portrayal of your uh, life. Yeah. You know, it's, and it's funny to too, difference. because I think on the outside looking in, people tend to think that like, Oh, this is where we make our income. And this is a big part of our business when it's really the smallest part of our business ever. And it could be larger, but it's just, it's not what I like to invest my time into. I, I, you know, have, I work on, love working on books. I love working on long form content that you are able to really sink your teeth into and give a part of yourself and, our film, you know, Under Arctic Sky was two years in the making. Like there wasn't, you know, and it was totally self-funded. And I think that these things alongside the commercial photography that I do and stuff, they serve both purposes. One is there to kind of make a living and then the other is there to keep yourself, 
you know, inspired and hopefully mm-hmm. others inspired. And to me, social media is just that last tool at the bottom of your toolkit where it's the thing where you can hopefully promote and put out the work that you've been doing and, and help, I think, give a voice to it in, in some capacity. Yeah. But I, but I feel like if things were the opposite and that was your main tool for communicating like what you're doing and, and then it would, it would feel a little bit stifling, right? you know, because it's not under your control, mm-hmm. like a book and, and, or a film, you can really control the message and, and it becomes your own vision as where something that's so, um, so finite, you right. know, and doesn't last is, is kind of scary, I right. think, you know? Yeah. And it's funny sitting down with, you know, Emily Harrington, for instance, she talked at length about, you know, her struggle with social media as, as a huge professional rock climber and not just wanting to show the good stuff, right? Right. Being open with her life and saying, okay, well, if I'm a professional athlete and I make a living off of social media, then I'm going to show the good and the bad and the indifferent and I'm going to be a open canvas. I think the more that we can be an open book, the better. I've, I've often felt like um, those that succeed on those platforms are those that care less about what people think and mm-hmm. care more about sharing the kind of intimate parts of themselves in hopes that someone might relate and it might affect them positively. Like that's, I think that's why we do what we do. And it's, it's the human condition to want to just put out only the positive things right. and have people, you know, from the outside looking in think that everything's dreamy and and perfect. Yeah. But the truth is like, I find so much more, um, I find so much more value in being able to share a bit about my struggles as a photographer, as an artist, not in a way that I'm trying to complain or this and that, but just to say, Hey, like this is what I went through and this is what I'm still going through and in hopes that somebody might relate and be yeah. like, cause I'd, I'd rather positively affect like two people mm-hmm. than, you know, kind of on the surf on the surface affect millions of people. Right. Like, you know? Yeah. So. And we talk about that a lot too, you know, where in the age of social media, where we're all plugged in and overwhelmed with content that it, it's so funny that we're, I mean, you see it last night and you see it in the responses to your photos where people are, they're so connected, but they're still yeah, disconnected and everyone's searching, you know, and that's why we talk about our tribe at the shows and mm-hmm. for people to come out and, you know, seven, 800 people to your show last night, people, they want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. I think yeah. we all, I think we all, we all do in yeah. some capacity, you know, it's, it's a really, uh, it's really fulfilling, mm-hmm. right? In many ways. Yeah. So yeah, it was a great night. It was awesome. <laughs> Super fun. You maintain a pretty crazy travel schedule. It seems like, um, I do, I do. It's a, it's sometimes it is, you know, I love it. And sometimes I really, really, really hate it. (laughs) I think this last year was a little more than I wanted. You know, I had two trips that were, I think right around 26 days each. And I went from Greenland to India. uh, And then I went from another trip, separate trip was Iceland to Patagonia. And I mean, they were like, probably the furthest distances you could ever travel, maybe like, you know, North to South pole or whatever, but essentially like it was, it was brutal. And, um, and the hardest part is that, you know, obviously I have two boys and my wife at home and that's a really harsh reality of having to do this for a living that, um, that they can't always come with me nor do they want to necessarily. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's something I, I think about a lot. A lot. How do you, how do you balance that being a family man? That's a great question. Um, I wish that, you know, it's funny because I wish my wife was here to help answer that because she really, (laughs) she really puts it into words well. And, um, I think that the the most important thing is communication. Like as, as cheesy as that may sound, like 
we're not really meant to communicate over text message. Right. There's something important about the sound of someone's voice and the, the tonality and the, the inflection mm-hmm. that comes from having a phone call um, and explaining something. So what I find is that when I'm on the road and I'm, uh, I'm busy or I'm doing something or whatever it is, I really just try to avoid texting at all costs and just make the time to have a call, even yeah. if it's 30 seconds. Right. Hearing someone's voice will dramatically change their day. It'll change the way that they they react and, and the way that they kind of respond. And, um, and and I think things get lost in translation when you're texting totally. you know, a lot. So that's like one of the, the rules, like the kind of the tricks of the trade. Another thing is just being transparent about like what you're doing and why you're going. And I feel like there was a good part of my career. I've been married to my wife for like, 10 years. She'll kill me if I forget this. Sorry. So, uh, 10 years now. And, and so we've, we've, we've figured some things out, you right. know? And, um, one of the realities is like, I, at a certain point I was like always trying to kind of like, Oh, I'll be gone for like, you know, it'll be this. I'm going for this. I'll be gone for, I was almost like embarrassed, you know, or I was like trying to make sure she understood that this was worthwhile. And, and I think now at a certain point in the career, you just realize, okay, like, well, this is a worthwhile trip. I'm going, um, like just super clear about your expectations about why you're doing what you're doing. And, and if you have hesitations then maybe you should question why you're going, right? right. Um, if this is a trip that you're going because it's going to be a great networking opportunity or it's going to be a great promotional opportunity or marketing opportunity, or it's going to just be a great money-making opportunity define that and put it into one of those verticals and then assume that, okay, this is worthwhile. I think that that really, really helps right. as opposed to kind of like beating around the bush and, whatnot. Um, and then really the last thing I find is like with kids, especially, um, you know, if, if I come home and they ask me like, where have you been? I feel like I've already failed. You know, if they don't know where I've been, if they don't have some sense of ownership of where I've, what I've been up to, what I've been doing. So texting them when I can a photograph or a video mm-hmm. calling them obviously and talking to them on the phone, I bring a sat phone with me. It's just something that never really leaves my side when I'm out on, you know, the middle of nowhere. And to be able to have access just in case and being able to make them feel like they're a part of the journey. Like my son, Jeremiah is like loves animals, you know, he's obsessed. And so every time I see something that is unique or an animal, I find whatever I try to make sure he gets that in some way so he can feel like he's a part of that experience. And I think that that is so cool because when you come back, you you have instantly something to talk about. You're not like trying to force this relationship to continue, you know, and you know, I'm the worst too. I, I tend to go on trips and I work 120, I give 120% of effort. Right. And a lot of times that makes me have tunnel vision. And I can't, I don't even think about them or anyone else. So that's been a learning curve for me to yeah. really figure out. Yeah. So, sorry uh, for the long winded answer. No, it's great. I mean, I think it's super honest and I, I think we see in the mountains here where, you know, I don't have children, but communication is the cornerstone to anything successful right. in your life, whether it's a marriage or yeah. work relationship or what, what have you. But I think it's rad to hear someone of your stature say, yeah, yeah I, I'm a family man first and right. I'm doing everything I do in that vein of supporting them. And, and I think that there's nothing wrong with, with taking time for yourself. I mean, I, after the, a long trip of being, you know, 40 hours of travel and this and that and whatever, what have you, like sometimes the first thing I want to do is like go surfing or go to the climbing gym or mm-hmm. go whatever, because I, I need to be grounded and I'm, or else I'm not going to be good for anybody else. And in order for me to like have that sense of like, okay, I'm back. I can relax. I I sometimes need to go and get that out. And it's not a selfish thing. It's just being honest with who you are and what your needs are. Right. And I think that really helps, you know? So, yeah. And I think I say this a lot about my wife, but I think 
the adage behind every good man is a better woman. hundred <laughs> percent. So, so true. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, as she sits in the room as our sound engineer. Yeah. Um, she might Im- like increase the sound right. on that part, <laughs> but you grew up on the, on the central coast. Yeah. T- talk to me a little about your family life. Yeah. Um, shoot. It was, uh, my mom and me were, were by ourselves for a long period of time. Um, my, my biological father passed away before I was born. And so I was basically just raised by her and, um, and she was total badass. Like, I think we spent 99.9% of our time at the beach, um, uh, because we lived close by and the beach was like babysitter and it was everything, you know, it was like, you know, as time went on, I just get dropped off there by myself and go surf or whatever. And right around like, I think I was 12 or so she, um, she got married and, uh, and then I had become some stepbrothers come into my life who are awesome guys. And, um, and I'm super close with them as, as well as a half brother. And so it was kind of funny cause I went from, you know, just being kind of only child to all of a sudden just having a big family. Mm-hmm. And so I've seen both perspectives and, um, growing up in the central coast was interesting because I feel like, you know, we're all a byproduct of our environment. You see people who are ski photographers and it's because they grew up skiing, you know? And for me, it's like, I, I grew up by the ocean. I had a really real understanding of it. I've loved the ocean. Um, but also kind of the open space that was presented to me, you know, like within a couple minutes of anywhere in the central coast, you could be on a dirt road, you know, you could be up in Big Sur in 30, 40 minutes or more rock or what have you. And so I think that close proximity to open space really, really resonated with me. And when I started to travel as a younger professional photographer, I was drawn to those places, places that were empty. You know, I grew up going up the coast and going to beaches where there wasn't a single footprint on the beach, mm-hmm. you know, where you have to duck under a fence and you'd have to know the path or where to park or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, you'd be dodging elephant seals and whatnot. And those were the types of growing up experiences I had. And I guess I, when I started to travel, some of the places I went to were less than dreamy. I mean, for me, like maybe for somebody else, it was, you know, we were on some beach in the Mentawai Islands or Thailand or, or Bali and there's people everywhere and there's, you know, tuk-tuks driving around and the, and it was, the waves were great and it was amazing, but I, I just really, really had this, this almost um, anxiety from the amount of people that were there. And I think it was strong Wi-Fi and great food and the high-rise hotel that yeah. was there. It wasn't the sense of adventure that I was seeking. So mm-hmm. I I felt like, you know, growing up and, and those early childhood experiences really, really uh, made a difference in, in the places I wanted to go and photograph. Yeah, right on. I think <clears throat> it's interesting too. I've always wondered what the kind of the primal drive is for these open spaces because yeah. we all have it, right? In the mountains, at the ocean. And I mean, no one wants to go to a crowded beach, but I think it, it speaks to a little bit deeper to who we are as people that maybe deserve some self-reflection, you know? That's interesting. You know, I think that, um, I don't think it makes you any better, you know, having grown up in a, in an area that's, that's has more open expanse than necessarily somebody who grew up in a city, um, at all. I just think it's a matter of, um, where we feel the most comfortable. And in some way it's funny because like these environments that I find myself, you know, this empty beach in Iceland or some place in the Faroe Islands, whatever, that's more of my comfort zone yeah. than being in like New York city. Mm-hmm. Like I have full anxiety. I go to New York city. I'm like, I'm not driving a car ever. Right. I don't even want to use a subway. I'm like terrified <laughs> of it. That being said, there's need for both yeah. because of the fact that in order for someone like myself to be riding that, you know, edge of my comfort zone and get out of there, I need, I need to experience both things. Mm-hmm. Public speaking was something that I was terrified of. I hated it. I had no desire to like speak to anybody about anything, but by forcing myself to do so, um, it allowed me to start to communicate more clearly what it is 
I aim to do with my work. And by doing so, that enabled me to kind of come closer to my mission statement and define who I was as a person, right? right. So I think all these things, they in the beginning, they seem so scary and, and, and it's it's not about totally rejecting them. I think it's about embracing them to a certain point where you can feel a level of comfort right. um, or at least a level of understanding. Mm-hmm. And I think, like I said, it's, it's, you know, it's about embracing, you know, each kind of, that's what makes us well-rounded, yeah. right? You have people who are like really, really like they, they perform so well out in the outdoors, you know, but then you get them into a social setting and they just, they can't function. Right. And that's like, that's great. But it, it I don't think it, it um, enables you to like fully just embrace all the aspects of who you are. Right. So. Yeah, totally. I think it's a yin and yang thing, right? You're, 100%. Yeah. To, to live that fully realized life, you know, we kind of, we we're creatures of habit and we kind of like settle into where we feel the most comfortable and, um, you know, yeah, that's, it's the one thing that, you know, about traveling that really keeps you, um, I think sharp in that regard is like, you're constantly dealing with that, like sort of degradation to ignorance, you know, mm-hmm. sort of thing where you're like, okay, well just because this seems right here and you go somewhere else and you see something done a totally different way, doesn't mean that it doesn't work there. Yeah. You know? and, and I, that's been a good eye opener for yeah. a kid from a small town. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So was it, tough for you not knowing your biological father? Cause I know, um, yeah, absolutely. You know, being any, if, if you have ever had the chance or if you ever do have the chance to, when you have kids and, and all of a sudden you're like, okay, well, I don't know what this is like, or I don't know what this feels like, or I don't know what you're supposed to do in this situation. I had nothing to compare it to. Right. So being a dad is, is probably one of the, the hardest things that I'll ever do in my entire life. It's extremely terrifying for me at moments. And right. I, I've gone through all the ranges of emotion feeling like I'm, you know, definitely not a good father to feeling like I'm, I'm doing a great job to whatever. And that's a really, really hard thing to deal with because you, when you, especially when you have a scenario where you never grew up with that, um, especially the, the, the formative ages, you know, I have had a step by step dad in my life. Who's like the best guy ever, um, since I was like 12, but I I was already who I was. Mm -hmm. I was already, my personality was developed, all that stuff. But from those early ages, like I didn't have anyone, you know, right. no real male figure in my life. So I, I realized a lot of things, you know, as it's funny. Cause like having kids taught me so many things about myself that I never maybe wanted to look at. Like I, I sought validation in a lot of male figures in my life and people that I worked with and whatnot. And I think maybe it's part of what made me have such a monstrous work ethic was that I was always feeling that need to like improve you yourself. Know, yeah. Prove myself to these people um, who I respected or whatever, because I never had that validation from right. father figure. So, um, so that was something I had to really internalize and be like, okay, why am I doing this? Is this healthy? Is this okay? Is this something that's, you know, benefiting me and or not benefiting me? Is it serving me? Mm-hmm. Um, and those are really real, like conversations I've had to have and, and, um, and look at. And I think that it did affect me in, um, in a lot of ways. Um, maybe, for positive, maybe, maybe for negative. I'm not, I'm still trying to figure that out, but it's definitely one of those things where I, I feel like I have that extra added measure of, um, of struggle when it comes to like, you know, raising my own kids where I really, I, I don't know how much, you know, is it too much hands-on or too, too little right. hands-on. And it's, yeah. a, it's a hard one. I'm, I'm in the vein of trying to travel less as much as I can and, and be home more. And, but also too, when we are home, you know, I, I tell my wife always, I'm like, I'd rather be really, really here you know, the short hours of the day that I can or the short times I can, as opposed to like working the nine to five every single day and then coming home and being on my phone the rest of the day, you know, that's not parenting. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a matter of like what we do at that time we're given and, um, and how we, we spend it. You right. Know, truly. 
Yeah, and I would imagine a lot of your, I mean, it's obvious you have a tremendous work ethic. I was fried at the end of last night after prepping and, you know, what. I bet, yeah. And to, to, <laughs> We've had a lot more extra work put in. Well, put in no, it. but to, to hear you say like, ah, oh, this, this is, you know, this is nothing. I've done three of these in a row till two <coughs> in the morning, you know. So I would imagine, you know, I have, I feel like I'm a tremendously driven person and that comes yeah. from how I was raised, from my, how my father raised me right. and my mother. But then I, I would imagine that drive comes back in your you know, it's, work. it's funny. Um, I would say that like my greatest hero in my life, you know, hands down is my mom. You know, she, she raised me on her own, had me when she was 17. Wow. You know, my, uh, my biological father passed away. It was, he had a car accident, right? It was a total mm. like freak scenario mm. that happened. And she was just that absolute rock that like decided to make this work, you right. know? And, um, she had the choice to, to, you know, even, you know, potentially, you know, keep me or not keep me too. And she decided to keep me. So it, it, it was, I've always like really admired that. And I think that my work ethic comes really truly from her, you know, working X amount of jobs and going to right. school and balancing all this and Seeing trying to, pull it. yeah, trying to like manage raising me who I'm sure I was a total shit growing up. Um, you know, and, and that's, I just have always felt like if there's any of that strength or mentality or mindset where like, you just have to get it done. Like right. it, it definitely comes from her. And so that's, that's really been, a, um, so in terms of like, you know, powerful women in my life, you know, she's like been the greatest example ever. So it's, it's a really interesting one. I think, like you said, we're all kind of products of our environment, but I, but also too, when it comes to like, you know, the presenting and public speaking, the crowd has such a, a big effect on that. And I find that when they're more engaged, you just want to give more of yourself to mm -hmm. them and you want to make it more exciting and, yeah. and you want to, you know, open up, you know, even, even more. And, um, and so, yeah, at the end of the night, you can either feel one of two ways. You can either feel drained emotionally and physically when you've had to like entertain people yeah. versus like you know, when, when they're excited and, and Fired you, up. yeah, then you're like, you feel energized, yeah. you know? So it's a kind of a, yeah, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. It's cool to hear you talk about, you know, internalizing your life growing up. And if, right. I don't think it, what we do is, you know, in general, good or bad just is yeah, right. Exactly. And, may, and maybe you could argue that while you, well, we can put labels on it. We often do mm -hmm. depending on how, you know, if we associate this with a positive or negative experiences, but the truth of the matter is that, yeah, it's like, it just is, you know? And if you, I think that the, cl the clearer you look at it like that, like all these things happen for a reason and, yeah. and it's up to me to decide whether they're, they're good or bad or how it affects me, you know? Right. Yeah. So, you know, cause easily I know people who in my same situation who've like turned to a lot of other things to find comfort and, mm -hmm. you know, and maybe I'm a workaholic. That's okay. You know, I'm, I'm working through that, but at least I can acknowledge it yeah. and I know where, what I need to do to change to be better. Right. Yeah, I think it was Chris Noble who told us, um, you know, you you don't control the cards you're dealt, mm -hmm. but you do control what you do with them. Right. So I think you could look at your your family life and say, yeah, well, yeah, that was a bummer to not have my my true yeah. father alive, but this amazing woman and my mother, yeah, you know, gave me everything I needed. There's a lot of like, you know, drug abuse in my family and other things mm -hmm. on my mom's side and potentially her having to deal with that at a young age, her having to step up to the plate could have saved her from a lot of those things, you know, because instead of having this extra support, extra hand where she could kind of grow up and do her own thing, she really, really had to put that effort in and hundred percent had to focus on all these things. And so I, in, in some ways you never know, you never know how things could have panned out. Like right. what seems on the outside looking in like a bad experience, you know, to me and her, we've chatted about it because my mom's pretty young, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm 32. She's like, 
I don't even know, almost, not even 50. Yeah. Um, we, we talk about it and, and I think that she, know, she recognizes that, that that could have been like a really amazing thing that actually like preserved her in totally. that way. So I don't know. It's just all a matter of perspective and, yeah. and you know, that whole, you gotta look for that silver lining. Yeah. You know, I think that's Always. important. And you're right. Everything does happen for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard you talk a lot about the, the appeal of remote and cold places. Yeah. Like <laughs> why, why do you think that came to be? Um, you know, I, I, like I said, that growing up and being, having that close proximity to places like Big Sur and these remote beaches. And when I started to, um, when I started to travel a lot, there's a dual fold kind of thing here. You know, when I was traveling to these places and I still am, you know, um, Norway and Russia and Alaska and all these locations, I was forced to give a lot more of myself in the research and the planning stages before you even get there. When you get there, you're already invested you're already like excited. There's some anticipation. It's not like you're just calling somebody and be like, Hey, book me a ticket to, you know, central Spain or whatever. I'm going to, you know, go check out the Galicia coast or whatever. So it's, it's a totally different thing. It's a totally different mindset. You're invested. You're going there. You're choosing people to travel with you who, you know, share in some of these same like values and, and they, they, they want to be there as well. And I think that there's an element of risk and there's, that's always present. The weather is harsher. The, um, you know, the conditions are, are brutal. You're bringing more gear. You're relying on people that you don't know, um, that maybe are, are less, you know, trusted than other, you know, places. And I, I feel like all of those things have heightened my experience and heightened my senses to when I'm there to where it's a much more visceral experience. And on the other f- like side of the spectrum, these places are more valuable to me as a photographer because I could take these images and I could sell them over and over and over and over because people hadn't seen them before, mm-hmm. right? If you go to Hawaii and you try to sell a photograph, you're competing with every other single person that's there on the beach. It's ridiculous. Right. So by going to somewhere, you know, like Norway or whatever, where, you know, a couple people had been there, but it wasn't something that had really been done a lot. Um, the images had greater value personally, physically, yeah. right? And so that was just kind of where I set my sights and yeah, they were more expensive and yeah, they took more planning and yeah, they required, I don't know, a greater sense of uh, like commitment, commitment. Absolutely. But that was kind of the, that was kind of the struggle. You know, I always felt like was like when I was going to these other locations, you know, and I've I've spent a lot of time in kind of the, the Nicaraguas and Bali's and Thailand's Mm -hmm. and Australia's of the world. And they're amazing. Don't get me wrong. And for other people that might be perfect for what they need. But for me, it just, I wasn't having that, life-changing experience that I wanted, I guess. Yeah. You know, not to be overly dramatic about it, but no, totally. Well, I think, I think with great risk or great devotion comes great reward, right? hundred percent. Both on a professional level, but also more importantly on a personal level. (coughs) Absolutely. I I couldn't agree more. Yeah. That experience of you being forced to give something of yourself, a lot of yourself at times and knowing that when you look at these photographs and you do this, you know, this kind of recollection at the end of the trip, you tend to, remember the experience much more vividly. I studied this, um, this psychologist in Australia who studied pain and he did this really interesting study where he had 10 people in a room and he gave five of them a drink. Uh, five of them had experienced trauma in their life and, uh, five of them had not. And they gave them a drink of water with some scented something in it or flavor or whatever. The people that experienced trauma or experienced pain or what have you, they could pick up the scent like 90% to one quicker, right? Because their senses were more heightened, okay? And what we find is that 
pain is, I mean, I'm not, I'm not always talking about like, I'm not always talking about like emotional distress and pain and things that make you like, I'm talking about like you know, phys, even physical pain, right. whatever, maybe numb hands, freezing lips, what have you. Um, those experiences can heighten your senses and make you more viscerally aware right. of what's going on. So for me, when I look at these images, I'm brought back to that experience and I'm not brought back when I look at photographs of some of these other places. You know, right, I totally. look at a photo of Norway. I'm like, oh my God, I, I remember, I have like a, this vivid memory of like being in the water right there and seeing this, you know, just massive clouds roll over these fjords and all of a sudden within a matter of 20 seconds, you're sitting in a, in a snowstorm and you, you can't decide which way you're going back to the beach and you're just kind of kicking on your back as your lips start to freeze. And I don't, these little things were like, all of that comes back to me and maybe it's just the way my brain works, but I just felt so much more invested and I felt so much more, um, I hate to say it, alive, you sure. know, um, when I was in these locations and I, and I guess I felt like, um, like I had more to say, mm-hmm. you know? And so when trying to turn that around into, to, from the very most minute thing, like a social media thing where you're sharing the experience or writing a book or a memoir or making a film the, the experience of, of really trying to relate that was just was just so much more vivid. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think it says a lot about us too, right? It is a Buddhist tenet that life is suffering. Yeah. And that isn't a negative thing. No. It's a very positive thing. It's a really thing. positive thing. <clears throat> totally. You hear it all the time in our world, in our circles, right? A big wall climber gets climbs a big wall and is literally standing there saying, that sucked. That I'm never going to do that again. I'm never doing <laughs> it again. Or running an ultra running 100 miler. <laughs> Until yeah. tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. You it's know? it's amazing how that type type two fun and even type three and four fun kind of fade away so quickly, you know? Yeah. Um I wonder why that is. I don't know, you know, and I think that it's one of the great mysteries that like is just is just fun to know that like we don't have to have the answer to. Like right. I feel like we're all we're all drawn in some way to suffer because and I think in just the most basic terms, it just makes us um, feel more. Mm-hmm. And I think we all aim to feel more. We live in a very desensitized world mm-hmm. where, you know, even the simple task of getting water is a couple steps to the sink. You right. know, there's no struggle of this or even getting your own food or this and that. Yeah. So it's, I think that, um, I think we're looking for ways to um, enable ourselves to, to really just be a part of the experiences we love. Right. You know, to make ourselves feel more alive. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's been an interesting journey to kind of realize that like for me that those experiences have also given me a lot, like a lot of healing too, right. you know, and, um, and, and, and really like answering questions that in the beginning I, I didn't even think were there, you know, or weren't even important to me, you know, like why, why do I feel this need to, you know, be, um, be in these colder, harsher environments and why does this force me to like be more introspective, you know, right. and I think there's a level of complacency that comes from being in places where you don't have to give that extra effort. Mm-hmm. And to me that, that is a really dangerous thing. Right. And we live a pretty privileged life here in the first world. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Particularly, you know, as California, w- as white <laughs> dudes in California. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? But you're known for images that are punctuated by untamed and powerful landscapes with oftentimes the surfer is almost a sidebar right. photo, right? Yeah. I mean, you have these majestic landscapes with the, with the little surfer in the wave getting barreled or whatever. How did you end up taking that approach? It's, it's, I've been, uh, I've been kind of, you know, entertained by all the books you have sitting behind you in this library. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. This collection you have behind you, but I was just, um, you know, as you're saying this too, I was looking at, you know, John Muir and the Sierra club and a lot of these incredible, um, 
artists and poet and writers. And I think that one of the things is that I, I became really fascinated by the landscape that was around me. Um, and when I first picked up a camera, I, I was drawn to landscape photography. I had no desire to shoot action sports mm-hmm. or adventure sports or any type of sports at all. I didn't right. care at yeah. all. That was like something I enjoyed doing. What I loved was in some way to kind of bring these visions of nature to, to life. And, and so my first inclination to landscape photography, I, I did an internship with a photographer named Michael Fatali large format, eight by 10 transparency photographer who shot, you know, these beautiful big sheets of film and he'd bring them into the Utah backcountry or, or the, the West. And, uh, and you know, he'd have two to three sheets of film and this massive camera and huge tripod and he'd hike miles and miles and his process and how patient he was with that just really blew me away. It was the thing I learned the most. It was just how incredible it was. You have two to three opportunities to expose this coming back from that internship i realized pretty quickly i was like there's no way on god's green earth i'm going to be a landscape photographer right now you needed the the time the patience the equipment the you know he had set himself up to be you know sell his work through a gallery he had multiple galleries in vegas and park city and uh, zion and whatnot and so that was something where it was like okay i love landscapes but i knew that this wasn't right for me right now and so i came back to california and I kind of started to think about like, well, I, I understand and I know surfing. This is something that I grew up doing. Um, I'm pretty connected in that, you know, territory. Um, and I, but I love landscapes. So I, I kind of started to, to try to infuse the two. You know, I, I was, we would be going up the coast to beautiful Big Sur coastline. You have these big rolling majestic, you know, green hills, cliffs that would lead to the ocean, big blue Pacific. And I, I always felt like the arenas in which we find ourselves in are so much more net magnificent. And so if I could try to compose images where this is really what you're focused on, but you have kind of this like subtle reminder that like, oh wow, like somebody's actually experiencing this in some way. And so, um, so I think that that, you know, combining those two was really, that was kind of the, the impetus of that. That's how it started. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's still something that I'm trying to figure out myself, you know, I feel like when I've gone to places, I've always felt like um, the landscape is truly the hero and kind of how we find ourselves in it. I want people to question our relationship with the world around us when they look at these photographs, you know, and and ultimately um, decide, you know, kind of where their place in this whole thing is. Yeah, that's a good it's a good question. Like besides that, I know you're for me, your work's very aspirational, you know, and particularly with the words that go with it. But how, how would you like to see your work? Yeah, you know, I, I I really like it to be highly relatable in many ways. And it's a funny to say that, but if you take this big, beautiful scene, this big, gorgeous landscape where the, the athlete or the subject is just this, you know, you could put a dime over them. The closer you get to that subject, the closer and closer and closer you get, the less relatable it, he that person, he, she becomes. Why? Because pretty soon the image becomes dated with logos and the person's, you know, face or the... Uh, like who this is. You identify it's a male, it's a female. You identify um, with all of these random things as opposed to just being like, it's a nobody. It could be me. I want to envision myself being there. So I really aim to try to create timeless images that, that truly stand the test of time. I love it when someone can look in a photograph and they don't know if it's 2018 or 1966. Mm-hmm. Like that's the raddest thing because Beyond just the fact that those are the images that make you the most money because they last for so long, right. but because they relate to the most amount of people and people can 
can it be inspired by that? You know, it's what you want to hang on your wall. You don't want to hang a photo of like, you know, Shane McConkie, like in full sponsor gear, right. you know, doing a backflip. Yeah. Maybe you do, but like, it's kind of more like that, you know, big mountain rider, like, you know, drawing this beautiful right. line, like when the lights killer, like that's what moves you. Yeah. So I guess for me, like I've always felt like if photography was going to change people, that was the approach I was going to take. Right on. Well, and I think it's, it, it becomes then more a, a work of art, right? than just capturing a sport. Truly, truly, yeah. yeah. And and as, as as cool and as engaging as sports are, truly like the, I think that the, like I said, the arenas, the natural arenas that we find ourselves in, like this is what makes surfing and skiing and snowboarding and, and uh, you know, what have you so incredible, you know, mountain biking, because we're not on a tennis court somewhere. Right. There's nothing wrong with tennis. I sure. love tennis. But when you can, when you can do your craft out in nature, I feel like it, it adds a lot to it. And we're really lucky to do that. And I think that there's, I mean, I'm the same, like I love being indoors and going to the climbing gym and doing this and that as well, but, but I want to appreciate both. And yeah. I think this is what draws me to be outside. So yeah, the medium is very instructional on its own accord. Totally. Totally. Yeah. You know, so it's right interesting. On. Yeah. <laughs> do you ever worry that by kind of, uh, showcasing these exotic and remote places yeah. that they could then become less remote. That's a fear of mine all the time. I have, I don't know how to put it, but I have these like, you know, two competing voices in my head. You know, one is to, you know, keep it, keep it as wild as, as possible and don't share it with people and keep them, these places preserved and this and that. But then the more, I think, um, realistic point of view and fear is that we see places like Bears Ears National Monument, which um, obviously for a, for a period of time was was very much not talked about, or it was it was relatively quiet. You right. know, yeah. uh, the people that that went there and used these places and and loved it kind of kept it to themselves. And now there's this massive influx for support, and everybody's like, "Go to Bears Ears, go to Bears Ears." You know, support Bears Ears. Support. Mm -hmm. How can people support something they don't experience? Right. We want to talk about climate change like it's this big universal thing that ev that should affect everybody. When right. the truth of the matter is that kids in Africa and in China they don't care about glaciers. No, they're never going to care about something they don't experience. So why don't we take these big topics that are really just kind of being used as as political banter and take them down to things that we can all relate to. Like nobody wants to live in smog. Nobody right. wants to live in a polluted environment. So how can we get rid of that? That will ultimately affect climate change in some capacity, but it's a lot more relatable on a, on a global scale. Yeah. And I also find that when it comes to, you know, this experience with the outdoors, you know, we, we like, nobody's born a conservationist, you know, it's I, one of the things that like really chaps me is like when you have these kind of, um, hoity toity folks who are like, you know, they expect everybody to want to, to want to use the outdoors and see the outdoors as a, from a conservation perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, but the truth of the matter is that Nobody steps outside and says, I'm a conservationist. I'm going to protect all this. That's an experience. And that's a, that's a feeling, a sensation that's born out of usually a lot of time in the wilderness and a lot of time being in these places. And so what we can expect from others is really, uh, hopefully we can foster a desire to be there. That desire is created by inspiring them. Right. And even if somebody just walks to the edge of the Grand Canyon and takes a selfie, it's a step in the right direction in my mind, because maybe that's their first experience. The second experience, maybe they'll go a little deeper. Maybe the third or fourth time, maybe they'll go all the way to the river, right? And they'll fully get the great picture. And by that point, maybe this person is developing a, um, a need to want to protect this place. And I feel like it is so hard to think 
about people doing it in other ways. We can't we can't shove and force um, our opinions down everyone's throat that they this is how national parks or this is how open space is meant to be used. I think that what we can hope is that, and what I hope to do is share the places I fear losing most in hopes people will go there and experience them and form their own opinion. Right. And I think you can back it out from even just our world, the outdoor world, from yeah. conservation or environmental perspective and look at it as a glass half full, glass half empty right. scenario where, you know, you hear people say all the time that uh, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. And, and some days I think that's true. Yeah, 100%. You know? yeah. But then other days I think about, you know, the comments you're making and have that they have tremendous power. And well, it is that small group of people that are going to make the difference right. that are going to figure out a way to combat yeah. climate change and well, it's, or it's whatever. Such a, it's such a funny thing because is the answer to have less people outdoors? Right. Like when you really think about it by protecting this and protecting that and, and this and that, and um, I'm, I'm all for protecting places, but I think not allowing others to experience it. Like what will that effect be? Right. Like what what's the, worse? What's worse? Yeah. What's, the, what's worse? Moving more people in the cities yeah. and having them be like, less in tune with what's happening in, in nature or having more people. And I think that the key thing is that for me, by showcasing places that are off the beaten path and that are a little more remote and wild, it f by getting to those places, you're forced to give more effort. Right. You know, these aren't locations that you're usually just stepping out of your car and going and photographing. Right. Okay. So I, I feel like that's, that's to me an answer to a lot of our problems is to get people out to those locations and in hopes that they'll have a similar experience. Right. Um, and I think that that was the hope of John Muir and Ansel Adams and a lot of other people, you know, and of course, like our national parks at times they become zoos and I, I fully understand that, yeah. but who's to say one person's experience is better than somebody else's. Right. Like that is the most elitist thing we ever. could ever think is that, Oh, because I'm climbing on this, in this big wall and I'm, you know, on, on manufactured bolts that were put into the wall, I'm having a more pure experience than the tourist who's here for their first time taking a photo. You know, I don't know. That's really up to them to decide. But ultimately yeah. I think that if we want to inspire people to eventually care about these places, they have to start. They have somewhere. to go there. Yeah. Yeah. It's so. not enough to see a picture. No, it never, yeah. it never is. You yeah. know? Well, and I think it's, it's cool too, because all, all of the best kind of conversations or, shared experiences with our partners in the outdoors are right. they're completely fulfilling and magical right um and i i loved that about the movie last night where you could tell a ton of planning went into your trip a ton of time and and labor of love and then when it fired and you yeah. talk about the experience with the people yeah like that's something i don't think we can lose sight of no it's not 100%. a selfish thing it's a group thing yeah no it's it's all it, that's the thing is that it's it, it made those relationships more meaningful. It made those relationships more real and raw and, and truly um, enabled all of us to see perspectives in one another that I don't think we would have seen any other way. Right. And, and that's like what the human experience needs more. And to get back to that pain study, groups of people that have had an opportunity to suffer together are closer. Right. Always. And yeah. that is like, that's how relationships work. That's how everything works. Like if you, I feel so much more intimately connected to that group of people than anybody else because of the fact that we endured something, you know, that's why climbing partners are, you know, usually lifelong friends. Cause when you suffer on a big wall or something like that, then you really know, or you suffer right. in the back country. So 
I think that that's, that's the type of relationships that I aim to foster and, and hope to inspire other people to seek after too. Right. No, yeah. it's super valid. Cause you know, we talk a lot about the, the brotherhood of the rope and you know, there's brothers in arm or sisters in arms mentality, these very real and visceral and, and organic experiences that bond you with people in the mountains or right. on expeditions you can pick up with that person 10 years down the road yep. and it's the same. I mean, you pick up like you've never skipped a beat. Right. And it's a lot different if you, if your experience, that person was just like sitting on a beach somewhere drinking Mai Tais. Right. You know? it's <laughs> and like, that, that's sweet too. But like, yeah. 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 Was, you know, but no, I totally agree. Like it's always more real, always more visceral, always something that like brings out a laugh or, or a cry or whatever it might be, you know, right. like it's raw, Yeah. you know? And it's fascinating. We have a hard time even, walking down the street and saying hello to one another. Right. Yeah. Right. Like imagine if more people could experience that kind of bonding and I 100% agree. and use that, take that back and, and utilize it in their real life, you right. know, on a social level, it could be a pretty magical and powerful thing. The key to communication, I think is, is finding those, those bonds within everybody. They're always there. There's a way to connect with everybody. Right. We just, we, you know, we fail to, be able to have those experiences. I think back in the day, that's, that's kind of how it was. You right. know? Everybody was suffering together. And now life is a lot more about like how little can, effort can you give to, to get through your day. Right. Crazy. I'm interested in your faith. Yeah. I'm fascinated, you know, have, having been, <coughs> been, you know, raised and gone to Jesuit Catholic high school. And uh -huh. how do you navigate that in your, in your life? And particularly in our industry where there's like, I would yeah. say the, a lot of people are abject atheists, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a funny one, you know. I feel like uh, that's a it's a topic that always is. Um, I'm probably like the the worst example of, of of a religious person because the religion's always been super personal to me, and I've just never really been the person to like outwardly share like this or that. It's just something that I've always I've always really really respected. I I grew up like I said. Um, when I was in that single parent home, I, I went to school and I had a really good friend who was Tongan. I, this Tongan family like took me in and they were like my brothers and I just spent like every waking moment with this family. And, um, they invited me to come to church with them and I started to, and then all of a sudden I was just like, cool. I was like eight, nine years old and I'm like, I'm going to get baptized. I'm going to do this. And, um, it was a totally personal decision. It had nothing to do with my parents or my mom or anything like that. And uh, my mom was actually super, <laughs> super against it. Um, and I did that and I was just like, I, yeah, it, it gave me this sense of, of ownership and gave me this sense of uh, family and I'm LDS, uh, Mormon. So I basically, you know, from kind of that day forward, like I've always seen religion as a super personal thing and I just, it's just brought a lot of joy into my life. Right on. I'm not the person who thinks that like every single person needs religion, like shoved down their throat. I feel like it's one of those things where if you, if you seek it out and, and it's something that that answers questions that you've been looking for and, and get, brings joy in your life, then it's probably something that you should really explore. Right. And being on the road is really challenging because I don't have the opportunity to, to attend church all the time. And, and I also don't have the opportunity to like be in, in situations where I, where I always want to be, you know, like traveling with a group of surfers to remote parts of Russia where everybody's drinking and going to strip clubs and whatnot. And I'm like <laughs> sitting in my hotel room trying to like lock the door. So nobody right. like, you know, these are real situations that you find yourself in and trying to, I guess, live a life with some set of morals. Yeah. Um, yeah, I do live in a harsh industry for that. But the beauty is like, uh, I've, I've really learned to, um, to be able to apply my faith to kind of everything I do. And I know that like, obviously when I'm, 
shooting photographs and I'm, I'm feeling that like great sensation of being able to inspire people. I know at least what that's glorifying and why I'm doing it. And, mm-hmm. and that's a really, I think big part of my own personal Testament is like, is that this is where all that comes from and, and this is how I can best kind of glorify, you know? So yeah, it's a, it's an interesting one for sure. It's something that is always the forefront of my thoughts. And it's something that I think is really like paved a roadmap for me to kind of be where I've been. And I, I would attribute like all the success in my career to trying to live those moral standards, you know, and truly like just not even focusing on, you know, I got married young and I didn't have time to focus on like, you know, partying or, you know, chasing down girls or whatnot. It was like the work kind of became that focus and, and raising a family and stuff. And I think that's kept me really grounded. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. Do you think there's um, a difference between spirituality and religion? Religion is really hard for people. Like the idea of going to a building and sitting there and being taught something. Right. And I think I, I struggle with it for many years. And um, one of the things that was a big like eye opener for me, it was like a epiphany was like, we always think about this idea that like, oh, we're going there and we're learning stuff. And oh, I'd, I'd feel so much more like in tune with nature and with God out in nature, you know, out in the woods or out whatever. And that's true. Like you probably can, you can probably go out into the woods and do what you love doing or be whatever and feel this, feel more spiritual. But what I found is that oftentimes, and you learn this in every religion services at the very core of it is that a lot of times when you're attending these meetings, you're attending this, you're not going there for you. You might be going there to share one thing with one person. And that could be literally the most important part of your day. Right. And I think we always have something that we can offer other people. And when we have the opportunity to go to church and, and give of ourselves of something, some act of service, like then I think it changes everything. So when I go, it's like, that's what I seek out. I seek out how, who can I serve? Right. Who can I impart some wisdom or something I've learned or some, some experience. And I, I find that that has really changed that whole idea. It's like, it's not about us. We do us six days of the week, like every day, right? You wake up in the morning and the very first thing you're thinking about is what am I going to eat and what's on my phone? And you basically choose kind of who you're going to serve in that very moment. You're mm-hmm. not getting up and you're like saying your prayers and thinking about, you know, at least human nature doesn't tell us to do that. So the, from the very moment we wake up, usually we're serving ourselves, right? right? So I think that by dedicating that period of time and realizing that it's not about me, it's about other people, it, it really has changed the way I've seen that. I think in terms of spirituality and the difference between religion and spirituality, I think that spirituality is sort of the manifestation of putting religion into practice. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the spirituality I feel like is what you carry with you the other six days of the week. It's what you carry with you when you travel. It's what you carry with you in your social settings and your friends. Um, But the religion is kind of, I think the education and the, um, the opportunity that we have to learn um, kind of more about our faith. Um, but yeah, that, that's kind of, I think in the most layman terms, how I would, how I would put it. Right. Yeah. And I love the service component because, you know, when, in my high school, the, the whole Jesuit slogan is yeah. th- they're raising men for others. Right. And I have, I have plenty of issues with formal Catholicism and whatnot, yeah. but as I've aged, and I look at what I'm doing with my life, all of our community-oriented events that are free last night, yeah. you know, giving giving yourself to other people. Mm-hmm. You know, I wonder if we took a step back and just looked at it pragmatically and said, even if I'm not a religious person, I can be a spiritual person. And, and if that's the, the conduit to helping others, right. like how rad is that? I, I 100% agree. I mean, at the core of every religion, there's an amazing amount of 
of of truth and yeah. amazing and it usually comes down to service right right and the truth is is like who who could not like do with having giving a little more to people right. you know i think that we've all been incredibly blessed and incredibly lucky to live lives that we do and and whether your active service is by you know putting on a community event and or just you know sharing the work that you do for with others freely or however that is i feel like that's that's really what hope helps to i think engage with our communities a bit more and and make people hopefully feel a little more connected to one another you know right and so. it, it gives i think it gives, gives a lot of people hope yeah you know? absolutely because there's you get there's a, a lack of that these days yeah totally and and they're you know arguably shouldn't be mm-hmm. but it's all perspective right i mean you put hundreds and hundreds of people in a room and you can feel that energy mm-hmm. and how how do you bottle that to and we've tried that to say, okay, well, the Winter Film Series, we want you, we want you to be inspired and go chase your dreams in right. the mountains and and go elevate your climbing and skiing. But the underlying message is like, take that passion, and you're giving yourself a reward by yeah. utilizing it. But maybe think about giving it some other way. Yeah, yeah, being able to transfer it a little bit. Yeah, you know, it's a it's a hard thing to do. Right. You know, because unless you feel full inside internally you can't give much to other people that's mm-hmm. one thing i found is if you're not happy with yourself you don't love yourself first can't, can't love you anyone can't else. love anybody else yeah. and, and it is a it's a real thing you know absolutely yeah. like that is a truly real thing and i think that's one thing that for me religion has taught me to, to do more is to be okay with myself be accept that i can't be everything to everybody mm-hmm. you know and um and yeah i don't know i think it's a it's a really funny line i, I hear that the thing that really gets me is people say, oh, religions for the week, you know, and the truth of the matter is I just don't, I don't really find that. I feel like it's, it, it brings you back to a, um, a place of like being able to serve and being willing to serve. And that's it's the most important thing I think we could ever do. Right. So. Yeah. Our families, our communities, yeah, it would be a different world if everyone had that mentality and, or at right. least on some level, you know, it doesn't yeah. have to be some comprehensive cosmic woo woo. No, thing, but not at all. Yeah. Not at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's fascinating. But, and I think, I think it comes back to, you know, the reward of, of the, that, that brotherhood, you Mm -hmm. know, of going on these trips with people, because I think it's a Conrad anchor quote that, you know, you, you go on these trips and the lessons that you learn on frozen waterfalls Mm -hmm. or or skiing peaks, those are just lessons that are magnified in your everyday life. And, you know, to take, you know, a a text from like, you know, the, the classic yogic, you know, um, their, you know, their, their sense of enlightenment, like, all of these things you could essentially learn sitting in cross-legged position, just meditating. But right. the truth of the matter is that us as, as kind of, I think spiritual beings having a physical experience, we're forced to go out and pull these experiences out from what have you, you know, whether it's in nature and city or whatever, and, and then internalize them. Like that's, there's a really great Ted talk from a guy named Pico Iyer, who's a, he's a journalist traveled for years and years and years. And he said that the greatest lessons he learned from traveling or when he sat at home, and internalized it. Right. And if we don't take the time to do that, then we do ourselves this great disservice. Like I can't express how many people I know who have filtered a complicated place through the camera or filtered it through their words or whatever when we just let it internalize in us and it's really hard. You know, you go to India, it's going to be hard to deal with some of the things you're seeing and witnessing and watching. Right. And um, if you don't allow that to happen, then then I think you, we, we lose an opportunity to yep. grow a right. lot. You know, it's... It's super yeah, valid. Totally. Yeah. And I've also heard you say that maybe you think we've lost the art of listening. What, I mean, why do you think that is? I think we all, have, you know, I definitely know that I could always do better. I think that, um, 
it's a hard one because as someone who teaches a lot, I, I, I always hate that because I don't like running my mouth a lot. You know, when I'm with somebody who I feel like I can learn a lot from, I really try to just shut my mouth and listen. You, you cannot do both at once. You can't listen and talk at the same time. Mm-hmm. Right. I, that's, that's a really important thing. You know, I, um, I, I struggle with that myself and I feel like that's a, that's an attribute that I think we could all work on probably a lot, a lot more. And I don't think that the listening always is about words. You know, it could just be about like what experiences you're feeling in these places. You know, right. I've done yoga for maybe six to eight years and I did a yoga teacher training and a meditation course a couple of years ago. And that's been like a pretty important part of my life. And one of my favorite things I learned doing this meditation course was the idea of non-attachment where you're meditating and you listen to something happening, meditate by a busy freeway. And you listen to all this noise and all this whatever. And, and what you'll notice once you start to kind of get into this place of, of being consistent and breathing and calming down your nervous system is that each of those sounds registers a cognitive response. Either you like it or you hate it or it reminds you of something from your childhood or you, know, you hear a motorcycle and you're like, ah, oh, man, like, you know, yeah, whatever it is, you know. And, and I just love the idea that like when you start to internally hear the, what your brain is telling you, you start to realize that you, you form opinions about everything. Mm-hmm. Form opinions about the, the wood on the walls and the, the water and the cups and the this and that. It's really weird. Mm-hmm. You know, it's an odd thing. And I guess I just, I feel like in that listening thing, it's, it's, it's internal and external. Right. So that's, that's, I think, something that we could all, I'm not telling, saying that everybody needs to go meditate, although that'd probably be a really good thing for everybody to do. Yeah. But I think that just like learning to hear yourself is really, is really good. Yeah. You know, Healthy sure. and powerful. Yeah. How's having kids changed your approach to photography? That's interesting because kids are such a gnarly reflection of yourself. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if the kids have, kids have changed my perspective on photography, but they've definitely changed my perspective of like where I've wanted to go, what I've wanted to do, and how I've wanted to experience things. Um, Maybe just live your life. Yeah. I mean, it's it's amazing. Like I feel like I still take, you know, as big a risks and I still don't, I don't, feel myself feeling like, Oh, I'm not going to go here. not going to go there. Um, but I feel like there's this re-inspiration of just like excitement to going to places that I've been before to share it with them and to see it from their perspective, you know? And, um, it's incredibly invigorating for me. It's an incredibly value. It's validating for me too, to like, to like be able to go back to somewhere that you've been or somewhere you've formed relationships and, and take them to a place like this, you know, been lucky enough to take my wife to Iceland twice and you know she like knows how much I love that place and and some of these other locations in my life and um I also just like I really I really love the opportunity to take my kids places to serve and do things like that you know we, my wife and I um did a trip to Nicaragua where we we worked in these these big trash dumps with these families that lived there it was called La Chureca. it was a super heinous heinous place in the world and we always, we kind of promised our, each other, like when we travel with our kids, we always want to have some element of service once they get to that age where it like makes sense and we're not worried about them, you know, getting lost or whatever. But right. so that's, that's an important aspect. And I just think that I'm optimistic. I, I guess I'm an optimist and I, I look at the world and, and think about how exciting of a place it's going to be for them. And I feel like if there's one thing I've really tried to do as a parent, there's one key, if I could sum it all into one thing, it's like, I don't want to pass on some inherent fear of the unknown. That's all. That's all it comes down to. I just don't want to share my own inhibitions and things that are making me fearful. I want them to, to kind of 
you know, they're going to be fearful of things, but I, I just hope that I can pass that on. That, you know, that's, that's my goal. Yeah. Well, it's the, I would imagine the most exciting canvas that you could paint. Absolutely. It's a great yeah. way of putting it. Yeah. yeah. Do you think the, the topic of your work will change as you age? Yeah. I've, I've already noticed it changed a lot. You know, um, there's a lot, I think out of the, throughout the year, you know, it's like, I'd say half the work we do is has some conservation element to it. You know, luckily nowadays I'm able to work a lot with our national park systems and, and, um, as well as like, uh, uh things like conservation International. I, I was able to, uh, to work on a, um, do a big gallery show with Paul Nicklin's gallery in New York, where a lot of the proceeds that go to helping, um, nonprofits throughout the world. And it's, it's totally a shift that I never really saw coming, but yeah, over the last, you know, I've been shooting for a decade and over these last couple of years, I think that's been a huge part of my work. And I think that, you know, to, to rip Yvonne Chouinard, that quote, you know, it's a, you know, you, you spend enough time in these wild places and you feel a sense of responsibility to protect them. And that's mm -hmm. just goes without saying you, you cannot, you cannot spend a lifetime in these places and not feel some element of, of wanting to, to protect them. Right. You know? Yeah. So, what do you struggle with? Mostly probably just always that time, you know, at home, like wanting to be home, wanting to be gone. I still love traveling. I still love seeing places and I love creating new work. You know, my library of images is it's so big. It's, it's ridiculous. Like there's a lifetime of work in there and I feel like I just, it's a drug, you know, truly it is a drug, like going to a new place, photographing something new, continually like that's a hard thing. I have a hard time kind of slowing down and really internalizing these experiences oftentimes. And a lot of that's because I'm, I'm on a job all the time. I don't really travel for fun. Um, I don't jump out on a plane and go somewhere because it's a vacation, you know? So I feel like for me, I have a hard time saying no yeah. to projects. You know, I'd end up taking on usually a little bit more than I can handle. And, mm -hmm. um, and yeah, that's just something you, you kind of have to, to learn. And I think that it's over time. I I've always looked at life as like, got to strike while the iron's hot. If there's an opportunity, you better take it, you know? And I think maybe this part of that comes from just my upbringing of like wanting to always provide, be mm -hmm. a provider to my family. And I, what ends up happening is like beginning of the year, I'll book out the entire year with projects and all of a sudden bigger and better things come along. And then I'm, I'm either having to do everything and like I have a day at home. This is how I got into a situation where I had two 26 day trips back to back. It was gnarly, super gnarly. And so with this year, I'm really trying to like not plan anything. Just let it be. Yeah. You know, I have, um, I have an office of seven people that I have to, you know, make sure everybody's taken care of and yeah. two mortgages and all these other things. So there's this fear as a provider that, you know, obviously I have to take on as much work as I can, but I'm learning to say no more. And I think it's a big thing for me, you know, is, is trying to find the balance to do a really good job at what you do and yep. cater to the responsibilities, but also have the wherewithal and the strength to say no. Right. But to do so well, yeah. you know, well, um, gra gracefully is hard to do, you mm -hmm. know, and I, I agree with you. You can't do everything good. Yeah. Every, something suffers. That's the biggest problem is that you, you try to do it all really well or you try to do it all in general. And and one of those is going to suffer. And you just hope that the thing that suffers isn't the thing that you really wanted to do your best at, you right. know, but you just cannot go from being in Greenland for eight days teaching to all of a sudden going to India and shooting a commercial project to all of a sudden being on camera somewhere to all of a sudden, you know, going and doing a speaking thing. Like there are certain things that, that your body needs that time to kind of reevaluate and just take in, you know, right. and that's, that's, it's a hard one. You yeah. Know, I'm finding something's got to give always. Yeah. And I, Sadly, 
my health is what's kind of given out now. You know, I got the flu for like a week and a half, so I'm sorry for, you know, sneezing all over the microphone. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's a challenging one. I'm just trying to figure out how to kind of, I don't know, you know, take it a little more slow and, and enjoy the moments along the way, yeah. you know? So mm-hmm. it's, I mean, one thing I learned a couple of years ago that has always stuck with me is like being busy is not a badge of honor. All being busy means is that you don't have time to do the things you want to do. So why do we pride ourselves on being busy? Mm-hmm. I would rather make sure I have time for myself and, you know, have these fluctuations where, you know, I, things can get hectic and they can get busy, but it's within your control. Right. You know, as opposed to just this, you know, month long of like, I, I barely have time to breathe. Right. I don't have time to go for a run or go yeah. climb, do anything that I want to do. So right. it's scary. It is. Yeah, and, we, and we get sucked into that, I think, mm-hmm. you know, job, family, what have you. Yeah. Yeah, there's an art to that balance, and I don't know if it's ever quite attainable. <laughs> I figured it out yet, you know? It's like, yeah. So Yeah. Dude, I can't thank you enough for coming. Yeah. Like, oh, you 100%. did uh, myself and Alpenglow and the entire community a huge solid, and um, we can't thank you and Prana. Happy to come back anytime. I love I, this community up here is rad, and I, I'm just my only, you know, drawback is I wish I was up here when the snow was, he was having like a banner year, Yeah, and, but it's a good excuse to come back and we'll get you back. It's, yeah. I'd yeah. love to really love to. So thanks for having me. Yeah, dude. Thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. Cheers. Killer. The eighth and final episode of season two of afterglow drops on Friday, December 14th with Barry Blanchard one of the world's most accomplished and recognizable alpine climbers. Our chat with Barry is perhaps the most insightful of any Afterglow conversation to date. We talk at length about his death-defying climbing feats amidst a life wrought with hardship, personal struggle, and ultimate redemption. It's my favorite chat yet, and I encourage you not to miss it. Afterglow is recorded at the Pink Palace Studio on the west shore of Lake Tahoe. It is produced by myself and my wife, Kristen Hanna, who also edits all Afterglow episodes and was the sound engineer for Burkhardt's chat. The music of season two of Afterglow is courtesy of the Cowboys Fiddle. Afterglow is available on any podcast listening platform. Please help us spread the word by subscribing, reviewing, and sharing with anyone who you might think interested. 